0: Hello everyone and welcome to tonight's Philosophy at LSC talk. Philosophy at LSC is a series of public lectures uh, and is organized by faculty from the Forum for European Philosophy, the Philosophy Department and the CPNSS here at LSC. Um, We will uh, be hearing from Kai Speakerman tonight on buying low and flying high, carbon offsets and partial compliance. Um, and he'll speak to us for about an hour and then we'll have about a half an hour of questions And we'll try to stop it uh, right at half seven because there's a drinks reception that follows On the first floor of the philosophy department and there'll be a mass exodus in that direction So if you don't know where that is, just uh, follow everyone else uh, And a few words of introduction uh, about Kai uh, He did his PhD at LSC. Uh, and then he went to Warwick for two years, uh, and he came back. And now he's a lecturer in the Department of Government, uh, in our department, or in the in the <laughs> government department. And he works on political philosophy and social norms, and does some stuff on environmental ethics. And it's the last
1: that we'll uh, hear about tonight. So I'll turn it over to Kai. Great. You. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Ben. And uh, thanks for the kind invitation to this uh, prestigious uh, lecture series. Um, so, um, as you already mentioned, I'm talking about buying low, flying high, uh, carbon offsets and partial compliance. This sounds uh, probably rather enigmatic. I think uh, in the course of the talk you will, you will see what I mean uh, by this title. So this talk, this talk really started with a, with a very simple question, and, and a very practical question for myself. It started when I was booking a flight to Hamburg, and I was booking this flight with EasyJet, and EasyJet offered me suddenly, I've never seen that before, this option to offset my carbon emissions. So, I mean, this is roughly um, how it looks. I mean, this is actually how it looks if you book it today, but I saw it looked a little different. So, EasyJet is offering me a deal here. So, they say, reduce the impact of the carbon emissions from your flights on the environment through UN-certified emission reduction projects. Contribute two pounds, very cheap, two pounds per person to balance the 175 kilograms of carbon dioxide per passenger on this booking. There are no middlemen and EasyJet doesn't profit from this scheme. Okay, so far so good. Well, and then they give you an explanation what they do uh, with uh, my money or with your money, if you're doing it, they say your money will be invested in UN certified (coughs) emission reduction projects to balance carbon such as hydroelectric power in Ecuador. The Hydroelectric Renewable Energy Project is a small hydroelectric plant using water from the river of the Andes hillside in Ecuador, South America. It has expected emission reductions in the first 10 years of 74,000 tons. This project generates clean electricity, reducing reliance on fossil fuel power generation as well as creating benefits and job opportunities for the <coughs> local community. Okay, so far so good. The question now is what to do? I mean, should I buy this offset? this the right thing to do? And this question really, I mean, started quite a research project. I'm still not entirely finished with it, but I I wanted to answer this question. I mean, what do you think about these carbon offsets? Is it, for instance, morally permissible to fly as much as you want, purely for leisure, as long as you offset your flights? Or is there something still wrong with um, flying around the world, enjoying your life, kind of uh, having very high carbon emissions as long as you buy offsets for a few pounds? So that's the question I want to um, Discussed today. Um, I can't promise one very clear and crisp answer. I will uh, give you a few questions, I will give you a few partial answers, and I think the, the very hard work then is, is for you towards the end of this lecture to kind of make up your mind and define your own position uh, with regard to that question. Just a few pointers about, about this scheme that EasyJet is offering me here. So, I mean, one thing you should notice is um, the numbers that I mentioned here. So, 74,000 tons in the next 10 years. So that means something like seven and a half thousand tons per year. And my flight alone is something like 175 uh, kilograms. So that already suggests that I mean, if, if uh, um, any substantial amount of, of passengers actually buy into such a scheme, then I mean, this can really just be um, a small example. So I mean, really, what EasyJet seems to be doing here is they're buying uh, carbon offsets. Uh, from the market i'm going to explain in a minute in greater detail how such a scheme actually works another funny anecdote about that is when i, when I actually first booked this flight there was a little picture here you know they, they, they took that off the website, but there was a little picture of, of a hydroelectric power station here, just to, you know, symbolize all this great thing. I was wondering, what is this power station doing there? I'm supposed to be building this power station. Why is it already on screen? So apparently, we just noticed that bit and actually took it off. So the power station is no longer there to see. It. If you actually click on, on the link that was somewhere down on the page, you actually now find a little picture of some kind of little valley, actually, where this power station is supposed to be built. But the project is actually real, so check that out. It's actually in the register um, from the so called UN Clean Development Mechanism. The project exists, but it's really just one of the examples that EasyJet is using to make this uh, more plausible. Now, some people think that the whole offsetting business is completely mistaken. And uh, one prominent philosopher thinking that is uh, Michael Sandel, who really um, is quite bold about that. So Sandel says, creating international market and emission credits would make it easier for us to meet our obligations under the treaty, it means the Kyoto Treaty in this case here, but undermine the ethic we should be trying to foster on the environment. So he thinks, I mean, the whole package, everything related to emission trading is completely mistaken. Now, I tend to think that this claim is too sweeping. I particularly tend to think, but won't say very much about it today, that on a trading scheme between countries or between large point polluters, large industries, trading schemes can actually lead to more efficiency, so these kinds of large scale schemes actually can make sense. But I'm not talking very much about it today, so today I really want to know how to think about these these voluntary voluntary carbon offsetting schemes that are offered to to private customers on a purely optional basis. Actually, turns out that that is much trickier and that, I mean, Sandel's very kind of sweeping bold move is really, really way too simple. So let's try to phrase the question a bit more precisely. So I mean, here's an attempt to um, really cut this into two questions that I think are, are essential to, to tackle this issue. So question number one is about individual ethics. And here we should ask ourselves, roughly at least, Provided I fly purely for leisure, may I fly as much as I like if I buy sufficient offset certificates for the emissions I cause by flying? So can I fly as much as I like as long as as I offset? And then there's also a second question, and that is the question of justice. Question of justice could be distinct from a question of individual ethics. Question of justice is roughly, is the voluntary offsetting scheme just or should it be reformed or abolished? So here we are asking the more systemic question, we are asking about the property of the relevant institutions that set up such a scheme. It could well be the case that while on an individual level we think, well maybe we have to do this, we have to opt into such a scheme, we may also think that on a systemic level if you were asked whether we want to change that system, we really want to throw this out and do something else. Now today I really want to focus on question one, but we'll say a few things about question two. Um, towards the very end when I conclude. And I want to do that because yeah, I mean my original motivation was what should I do when I'm faced with that booking screen there from easyJet?' That's, that's the question I want to, I want to figure out. Okay, So here's um, the plan for, for the evening. I will um, say a few things about, about climate change. I mean for many of you, that's uh, no surprise, no news value. I just want to remind you what a serious problem climate change actually is. what it means and why um, actually causing excess emissions can actually harm people and this is really quite bad. Then I want to explain these uh, schemes of voluntary carbon offsetting in uh, a bit more detail. Um, I want to figure out how much we should actually offset. Should we just offset exactly the amount of our flight or perhaps more, perhaps less? then we talk about prices. So I mean, one of the striking features of uh, this offer that EasyJet was making me there was that it was so cheap. I mean, two pounds for, for a flight to Hamburg, incredibly cheap. Is this perhaps too cheap? And if yes, why exactly is it so cheap? And then finally, um, kind of a change of perspectives, I'm still trying to work out how to relate in terms of my individual ethics towards this uh, proposed offer. And, I give it another shot after discussing all these questions here. I'm trying to approach the problem with um, some kind of universalization scheme, so a roughly Kantian way of moral thinking, because I think this actually captures most precisely our intuitions about carbon offsetting, but I mean I will explain in, in much greater detail what exactly I mean by that and why I think that maxim universalization might be the right approach here. And then I will very briefly conclude. So, here we go. A few words about um, climate change. So, um, you probably all know about the greenhouse effect. There's a natural greenhouse effect, so um, if there was no carbon dioxide in the atmosphere whatsoever, then the earth would be incredibly cold. So, um, a bit of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is actually a good thing, because it warms the earth in a natural way. It can be thought of like like a a greenhouse effect. (laughs) The problem really is that, um, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide and other emissions are rising. Um, and here are measurements. So these are measurements from, from an observatory um, on the Mauna Loa actually. Um, this observatory has been measuring um, the carbon content of the atmosphere since 1960. Um, in the 1970s there was a debate whether they should close the observatory. Fortunately they didn't. Um, so now we have this complete data set and we see that actually the content in parts per million in the atmosphere of CO2 molecules is actually rising. Um, We're now kind of close to 400 ppm. Okay, I um, should just very briefly mention there are also other uh, greenhouse gases. There's methane, um, very important in terms of agriculture. A lot of uh, methane is, is emitted there, especially uh, cows grazing and digesting grass. Um, there's nitrous oxide. There are many other things. Um, some. Um, very potent greenhouse gases that are kind of technically produced, um, some um, kind of uh, fluor uh, compo- uh, components, things like that. But let's focus on carbon dioxide for now. Now, what's the evidence for climate change? Well, the evidence is increasingly overwhelming. So these are charts that from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So we do see um, here the curves for the surface temperature worldwide. And we see a very clear trend, and this is moving upwards. Uh, We also see a very clear trend in uh, terms of sea levels. So sea levels are rising around 20 centimeters or so in the last 150 years. Um, We also see a trend in terms of snow cover, though that is actually a little bit less clear. So there is a downward trend here, but uh, (coughs) perhaps not quite as decisive. But overall, the evidence that there is climate change is now um, very, very difficult to contest. Um, and there's much more indirect evidence. Maybe that is even stronger evidence. So, for instance, we have many biological systems, bird migration, um, insects appearing, disappearing. Um, so, the biological systems on the Earth are reacting already to a changing climate, and that should give us a very good idea that something is currently happening there. So I, f- I take this to be beyond dispute. I mean, if there's a climate skeptic around here, we can we can discuss this later. But um, I just take that as, as given for now. Now, a um, few words about projections. So again, this is from the IPCC. So you have here um, emission scenarios up to 2,100. Um, so these are global GHG emissions. And you have a few scenarios. So you have kind of more business as usual scenarios. Um, is this one, the extreme one here, um, we have kind of a relatively low mitigation path, and we have quite a radical mitigation path, things that go down uh, quite quickly, so we've uh, kind of managed to contain um, greenhouse gases uh, to quite an extent. And then we have the temperature developments um, aligned to these uh, emission scenarios, and we can see here I mean, the lowest line, that's actually a line that we can't reach, so this is the line that we could magically just stabilize the Uh, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere and even then we would actually see a bit of a temperature increase but more realistic are actually um, yeah I mean business as usual scenarios like for instance the red one here where perhaps we get something like 3 degrees but we might well get more so we have considerable uncertainty about this this may also turn out to be something like 5 degrees and that would surely be a catastrophic form of of climate change and even if we go on a quite radical uh, reduction path Um, We are still around two degrees and it might well be more. So um, climate change is indeed a very serious problem and actions Mm -hmm. to be taken um, quickly to kind of leave the Earth at a state where we can most likely, hopefully, manage the climate change. What are the effects? Um, It's actually interesting to think about all the different Mm -hmm. causal paths of climate change. So we have immediate physical effects, so the first one of course the concentration of CO2 and other climate gases is rising in the atmosphere. Um, we have the temperature increase um, of perhaps 2 degrees or more. So that is all kind of the most obvious physical stuff that you can describe. But then, um, of course, we have to think about how this actually relates to people. So the first thing to think about is the rising temperature. You may have heat-related <laughs> deaths from that. But then there are many, many, many indirect effects, and in a way, these effects might be more important because they are difficult to predict and may well have very strong feedback mechanisms, something like a positive loop that enforces them. So for instance, um, we talked about the sea levels already um, in terms of the physical systems that might be changing. We talked about, or we haven't talked about, but we should mention precipitation patterns That is something that's absolutely crucial, for instance, for people who are relying (coughs) on monsoon rain or on any rainfall at all, all, like in the sub-Saharan area or so. Extreme weather patterns, perhaps hurricanes, um, glaciers melting. So this is not about skiing in Austria and Switzerland. This is also about uh, the big Himalayan glaciers that are feeding um, the rivers that in turn are supplying the agriculture of around one billion people on the Indian um, and Chinese uh, subcontinent. So this is actually massive. If the Himalayan glaciers were to melt this would be absolutely catastrophic. Um, We have uh, biological systems um, that um, again react to climate change. This might um, change our agricultural yields. They might well go down. Um, It could create more epidemics. So malaria is often discussed but also diarrheal diseases would be very important, especially in Africa. Um, and there are also links via social systems so we can talk about migration social unrest, failed states even war and um, some people believe that that we are already experiencing um, things like that, so some people believe that for instance the the war in Darfur was partly uh, caused by climate change at the very least we can say that the war in Darfur was made worse by enormous kind of weather climate pressure, so they they experienced a very long drought there and um, that, was, that was a factor that actually triggered, triggered this particular war. Okay, so that's enough about climate <laughs> change, so that was my, my seven minute update on, on why climate change is important, and for me it mainly matters to, to make the fundamental point that emitting carbon and other greenhouse gases actually can harm people, so emitting carbon is a serious issue and we should all try to lower our emissions if possible, so I take it as, as granted that um carbon emissions are actually are actually harmful. Now let's go back to the voluntary carbon offsetting. So let's um, have a look at a few more examples. So um, here are um, a few. So I mean obviously you can off- offset flights. We talked about that. Um, but there are also other things. So for instance, the World Cup 2006 is, uh, was apparently carbon neutral. Um, All the emissions um, from the events were offset, turns out that the South African World Cup was not carbon neutral, that was probably too expensive with all the air travel and the air conditioning and so on. Um, Okay, Um, then um, if you buy a Land Rover, turns out that um, actually Land Rover is offsetting the first 45,000 miles for you, so you can feel very smart because you are actually not um, according to their own PR material, you're not actually uh, doing any harm to the the climate on the first 45,000 miles. Um, should mention that, I mean, they're not offsetting any of the production <coughs> uh, carbon emissions here, and they're also not offsetting your next 45,000 miles, um, but nevertheless I mean, you, you see that such schemes are are actually questionable I think actually the Land Rover example kind of shows you the, the absurdity that might be in such uh, schemes most, most clearly now, now, how does it work? let's take a slightly closer look here so we have, um on the one hand the buyer who creates some kind of extra emissions according to some kind of baseline scenario the buyer pays the seller of a verified emission reduction to reduce his emissions so money is flowing from the buyer to the seller and what you want to have is is a zero balance between the extra emissions on the one hand and the reduced emissions on the other hand now um, I'm kind of simplifying a little bit, usually this is not a direct deal. So usually you would have something like a clearing house here. In, this, um, in the voluntary case, these are often actually private companies that, that offer such deals. But um, in the uh, industrial case, this is typically the United Nations clean development mechanism. But I mean, let's ignore the the, um, the clearing house for now. Let's just um, um, focus on, on the main um, players here. These are really just the buyer and the seller. You also usually assume that um, the seller actually um, is more efficient in doing um, these offsets and i mean that is just driving the deal i mean if the if the seller can actually can actually create um, um, uh, um, emission reduction more easily then it's actually attractive for this deal to happen so then it's it's just these 2 pounds because it's so incredibly cheap to buy this hydroelectric power station in ecuador or whatever okay now um, What are the kinds of problems we could experience if we um, um, set up such a scheme? Well, there's really one big issue and that is um, additionality. Additionality means that if this project had not happened, if there was no offset, if you hadn't bought the offset, then the emissions would have been higher. So what you need in order to make this claim is you need some kind of baseline scenario. You, you need to say, OK, there are two worlds. The worlds in which I actually do the offsetting by this uh, verified emission reduction and the world in which I don't. And you want to say, you want to make the claim that actually in those two worlds, um, the emissions differ. If the project had gone away, like had gone, gone ahead anyhow, I mean, then, of course, the whole thing is completely pointless. Now. Philosophers have all kinds of trouble with such uh, counterfactual scenarios, um, but I mean the practitioners in the field, you know, they just, they just press ahead and they say, okay, let's define a few criteria, there's a long list of criteria, there are several standards, and they say, well, we can roughly, at least in practical terms, establish um, additionality. I have a few <laughs> doubts about that, um, but um, let's accept this works for now. Um, tricky enough, but let's, let's go on to that additionality can, can somehow... Be sorted. There's another problem, and that is something like normative additionality. That's um, much less frequently discussed. So, what if we, someone else, was under the obligation to make these savings in terms of emissions, anyhow? So you are kind of paying um, to discharge someone else's obligations um, to do uh, the sort of emission reduction. Again, I think this is a serious problem. So it's, it's kind of trading in, in kind of more obligations to reduce emissions. Um, that's another weirdness about, about these kinds of projects. And that is even harder to establish, of course. For that, you would have to have a complete normative background theory, um, what different states, what different private actors within states actually would have to do in, in terms of emission reductions. But let's go on again that this can somehow be sorted out. What other problems can we have? Well, sometimes projects just fail or are not permanent. So, permanence is a massive issue if you plant trees, for instance. Um, trees tend to die um, and then the carbon gets released again, so that, that, is, that is actually tricky. Um, sometimes projects just don't work. So, um, the bank Coldplay, for instance, um, had an offsetting project where they planted mango trees in India out that the whole mango, plant, uh, whole mango plantation actually died after a couple of years, um, so this was a complete failure. These things actually is actually happen um, quite frequently, so um, project failure is, failure is an issue. Some projects are counted more than once, I mean that's, that's also not good. Some projects cause unintended side effects, I mean hydroelectric power for instance can, can have bad side effects sometimes. So all these are very serious issues about, about implementation. And then there's a further issue. There is also an incentive to actually misrepresent the, the counterfactual scenario, the baseline scenario. So, of course, the sender of these certificates, they want the money for these certificates. So, they're going to tell you a very strong story why they are actually reducing emissions. And this incentive is, is another, um, another massive problem that often leads to kind of, kind of bloated statistics in terms of. Um, the the actual reductions that are supposedly achieved. (coughs) Now, um, I want to put all these practical questions to the side now. I think they are hugely important. I think these are the questions that need to be sorted out by practitioners. Maybe they cannot even be sorted out. I mean, then we should really uh, trash such a scheme. But let's suppose for a moment, just for kind of philosophical clarity that all these implementation questions can be sorted out. So let's um, make some assumptions to really simplify the problem to the core. So here are my core assumptions that um, I want to use. I consider this case already described of a person, an individual, flying purely for leisure. I assume that this person buys exactly the offsets for the flight cost. I assume that these offsets are kind of useful in an additional way, that they create some kind of positive side benefits, like for instance development in the relevant country. And I assume, as I mentioned, that all these practical implementation problems can be solved. Now I maintain that even if all the practical problems go away, we still face the fundamental fundamental moral questions. Um, Do we still (coughs) want to know, are these leisure flights actually permissible um, if they are offset, and are such voluntary offsetting schemes actually just? Okay, so where do we go from here? What do we do now? I still have this intuition, even if I set aside all the practical issues, that there's something wrong about carbon offsetting. And I want to find out exactly what is wrong about it. So here are a few alternatives. Maybe it's just wrong to pay other people um, um, to discharge one's own, own obligations. So maybe it's just not okay to say, okay, rather than reducing my emissions, I'm paying someone else to do it. Now I maintain that this cannot quite be right. I think there are certainly situations where we do pay people to fulfill our obligations and where that is perfectly fine. So consider this example. So let's suppose um, you, you live in a shared flat and um, you are uh, preparing lunch and you make a bit of a mess and then you suddenly you realize that you really have to dash to your next lecture and you, you kind of leave a little bit of a mess behind and You kind of think, well, I'm really under the obligation to clean this up. But you can't do it because you know you, you have to go very urgently. So you ask your flatmate, and you, you tell them, OK, um, actually, I can't clean up right now. I, I need to rush to the lecture. Um, can you just, you know, um, wipe the kitchen table, and I'll buy you a beer later on? And it seems to me that such a deal is perfectly fine. So there are situations where you can actually somehow ask people to discharge your obligations to pay for um, those kinds of things. It's not OK in all kinds of cases. So. Another example, um, so on Boxing Day, I'm always invited by my uncle, or my uncle to um, some kind of kind of Christmas coffee. And I really wish I could pay someone to go there instead. Um, don't tell him. Um, but I really can't. So I mean, that's, that's the kind of obligation where I really, I mean, I cannot be replaced, and I cannot pay someone to do the job. But it seems to me, in the case of carbon emissions, it's not so plausible that we have such an agent relative conception. So carbon emissions are very impersonal, they are a little bit like money, you know? Some people put some carbon into the atmosphere, another person takes carbon out of the atmosphere. It's, it's, it's not that it matters really who is doing it, so carbon emissions are not ancient are not relative in that sense. So I think that we can really put uh, argument number one to the side, I think that's, that's not the right one. It's not about me paying other people to discharge um, my obligations. I think that points 2 and 3 are leading us in the right direction. So I think that we may have an issue with the fact that offsetting is at least currently too cheap. But we may have an issue with the kinds of intentions, the kind of, kinds of motivations that are driving these uh, schemes and are kind of underlying our, our desire to buy these offsets. So <laughs> now, in order to um, address uh, this question of how cheap it is, Let's very briefly look at um, how much offsetting we should actually do, and then turn to um, the question of prices um, itself. So well, we can actually buy these offsets, and of course these airlines offer us exactly the kinds of offsets um, that we would need in order to offset our flights. Well, there's some debate whether they actually offer us the right amount because these um, emissions on the higher level of the atmosphere are actually more climate effective and many of their calculators don't include that. But again, all implementation problems to the side, even if they did, is it actually okay just to buy those offsets from a flight? So why not why not just pay more? I mean why not why not buy more offsets? So this is um, kind of a very crude utilitarian argument for buying as many, as much offsetting uh, certificates um, as you can. So um, this is what perhaps some, some consequentialists, some utilitarians uh, will believe. So um, let's suppose our very crude moral theory is that we ought to choose actions that always yield the best consequences. Now we also know that climate change has very bad consequences. Um, we know that buying these emission reduction offsets um, reduces the effects uh, from climate change. Um, And let's suppose that is of course a preposterous assumption. And let's assume there's just nothing better we can do in the world. Well, if that's the case, then according to some really crude versions of utilitarianism, we just should buy offsets like crazy, you know. And then we have of course solved this problem of of it being too cheap because it's not cheap at all. We just have to continue buying and buying and buying offsets. Um, Now, I mean, apart from the fact that P4 was not very plausible. and there are, of course, many debates about how much effort we should make in terms of saving the climate, um, related to or in comparison with many other uh, current world problems that we have, like, say, hunger and Africa, terrible diseases or so, but even if we accept um, uh, the crazy hypothesis P4, it seems to me that, that such an approach is just not, just not very convincing. I think um, it has at least two kinds of problems, and I'm just hand-waving a little bit here now. The first thing is that such an approach will force us to take up the slack from other people. So if that is our approach, that means if other people are not doing anything about the emissions, then we just have to buy the relevant officer certificates for them as well. So we could well go beyond all our emissions and just continue buying and buying and buying because it makes the world better. So it forces us to take up the slack from others, which which I don't find terribly convincing as, as a mean principle. So I think it, it leads to absurd consequences. Absurd implications really. The other problem is even in consequentialist terms, I'm not sure whether this is such a good idea. So a slightly more strategic consequentialist, kind of a smart consequentialist, will realize if you start buying kind of for, for all the sins that other people are committing, then nothing will ever change. So if you are politically strategic about that, you will say, well, you know, <coughs> I'm buying these offsets, but only if other people participate in such a system as well. So you really don't want to be the you really don't want to be the sucker who is buying all the offsets while other people are just continuing to fly like crazy without doing anything about it. So I think that these kind of crude return versions buy as much as you as you can. Um, I mean, that's that's really not going to work. That's 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 clearly mistaken. So. Um, Here's what I find more plausible, and I'm kind of jumping quickly here now, I'm doing, doing the boost very fast. I think actually that for a problem like a carbon emissions, something like an individual limit principle is much more plausible. So that means um, you should stick to a certain s- low, sustainable level of carbon emissions and everything that is caused beyond that is actually, must be considered as harming other people. And if you cannot avoid it at all, then you have to buy offsets. So um, the individual limit principle has a few advantages. I mean, first of all, I think it's plausible to um, have a link with causal responsibility here. So it seems to me that something like carbon emissions is really something where you, what you are causing matters. So you want to be responsible for your emissions, but not for what other people are doing. Secondly, you don't have to take this up the this life from other people, so you just do exactly the right thing in order to compensate for your emissions only. So, um, that seems more plausible I think. Um, So again I'm really just hand-waving here. I'm not not really giving you a knockdown argument for the individual limit principle, but I think the individual limit principle can be defended. So, cards on the table here. I'm in favor of, of the individual limit principle. Now that's good, but now the problem of the price comes back. Now, if I really only have to offset my own excess emissions, and these kind of offsets are so quite a bit cheap, then seems to me I've now kind of argued myself into a bit of a corner. Um, so I cannot really explain to you what's bad about these really cheap offsets, because you know, I mean I'm sticking to the individual limit principle. If I if I buy all the of relevant offsets for my for my excess emissions. Okay. Now, where do we go from here? I think we need to start talking about prices um, a bit more seriously. So um, let's talk about the market for these offset certificates. Now the first thing to notice is the supply of these genuine offsetting uh, projects is quite limited. It's probably even more limited once you assume that all of them are properly implemented. So I mean, of course you can have loads of both implementations, but if you really boil it down to the ones that really, really work, um, this may not be um, that much. At the same time, there's also very limited demand for um, these voluntary um, offsets. So um, estimates say something between two and three percent of airline customers actually do buy these voluntary offsets. Now um, the result of all that is currently. This is all very cheap because the demand is low, but it could quickly be much more expensive once the demand is higher. So, what would happen if people had to pay 20 pounds rather than 2 pounds? Well, it seems to me that uh, quite a few people would have um, second thoughts. So, let's compare these two situations. So, this is the, the only slightly technical element of the lecture. Um, so, let's go through this. So, we have um, Kind of the quantity of offsets here on the x-axis and we have the price on the y-axis. Now what we do is we draw demand curves and supply curves. So this is a demand curve when we force people to comply with such a scheme. So I call this the full compliance curve. Now if everyone has to buy these offsets, the demand will be quite high and um, so this is kind of relatively far, far out in this direction here. So people can then either decide to buy these offsets. Or not to fly. Um, And because many people want to fly, um, actually, people are prepared to pay relatively high prices, um, so quite far out here, for these offsets. And we have a supply curve. These are really just the different projects that we have and kind of the money they cost in order to reduce emissions. And then we have an equilibrium where demand meets supply. And this would be kind of the quantity traded under full compliance if everyone was offsetting, down here, and the price that people would be paying, the price would be, would be quite, uh, quite high. Now let's compare this with the voluntary market where only a few people actually participate in such a scheme. So that is down here. So we now have to change our demand curve. The supply curve um, doesn't really matter anymore. This is our demand curve here, I right? just it this little king shape. Why does it have this little king shape? Well, because it's just a certain number of people. I mean, mm-hmm. buying these kinds of quantities here. Yes, those kind of the first movers, those people that buy the um, offsets because they just think it's the right thing to do, and they're quite price insensitive in the beginning. So it doesn't really matter whether it's say one pound or two pounds or so. But then there's a certain point where it gets so expensive that people quite quickly react to the price. So if we say ten quid, 10 quid twenty quid or so, people will probably say, okay, now oh, that's really too expensive. I mean. A nice idea, but I'm really not paying that much extra. And so the demand then very quickly peters out once the price reaches a certain threshold. Now, if we now consider the equilibrium here, then we see that, crossing again the supply curve, um, the volume is much smaller than under full compliance, and also the price is much lower than under full compliance. So, um, as you would expect, I mean, if you give people a choice whether they... Comply or not, then actually uh, the volume of the market is just is just smaller, and the prices are much lower. So, what we are seeing here is, in a way, um, an illusionary price. In the voluntary market, as we have it right now, people really don't have to pay that much for these offsets, and that is because we have a partial compliance situation. By the way, this is why my talk is called uh, "Buying Low, Flying High." Um, um, what was actually the subtitle? Carbon Offsets and Partial Compliance. So partial compliance is exactly what we are what we are seeing down here. Okay. So let's sum up um, where we are and make the final move towards, towards the, the Kantian schemes. So the question was: provided I fly purely for leisure, may I fly as much as I like if I, first of all, why these offset certificates for the emissions are caused by flying and if these offsets are properly implemented. The first result we had is you only need to offset your own emissions, I said I did not really give you a knockdown argument but I was kind of pointing, hand waving in the direction why I think that the individual limit principle is actually the right approach. Second result is offsetting is really cheap because it's um, voluntary and only very few people do it. Now, what now? Are we all sorted? Can we just say, OK, fortunate situation. I mean, it turns out to be cheap, but I mean, people are just, you know, uh, meeting their obligations. They, they do what they're supposed to do. So those people who offset are doing the right thing. Maybe that is the answer to this kind of individual ethical question uh, that I asked in the beginning. Well, perhaps but I'm still not convinced. I still have this very persistent intuition, even after exploring all these options, that there's something wrong here. And I want to give it another shot, so I want to make one more attempt to actually try to explain why I still think there's something wrong, individually, for me, about these offsetting schemes, if I buy them and they are so cheap. And here is um, my attempt to do that. So in order to explore this last uh, question, in order to Kind of, you know, save my intuitions and kind of make sense of my intuitions. I'm trying to go down the Kantian route. So, um, just as a little pointer, so I mean, this is what Kant thought about um, about um, universalization. So, I just give you very quickly here the, what Kant calls the formula of universal law. So, the formula of universal law says that there is, uh, therefore, only a single categorical imperative, and it is this act only in accordance with that maxim for which you can at the same time will that it become a universal law. And then Kant also gives us a second rendering, and that is the formula of the law of nature, act as if the maxim of your action were to become by your will a universal law of nature. Okay, now what does that mean? There is a huge amount of literature on how to interpret um, what Kant exactly meant by these formulas and I'm not even giving you all the formulas there are even more formulas in the groundwork and then the groundwork is not the only book about ethics that Kant actually wrote and so on and so on I'm really simplifying things dramatically here I just give you a very simple scheme to apply this I'm not saying that this is really what Kant thought perhaps it's not. doesn't matter we just go with, with something very simple here take this from um, an article by um, Thomas Pogge in 1998 so Pogge says that what we should do when we want to perform such a test, when we want to test our maxims for their permissibility, we, we try to do the following. We say um, we are looking at a maxim, which is um, a subjective principle of action. Um, this principle is there to um, pursue some objective, called subjective E, in certain circumstances S, uh, through some conduct C, the letters don't really matter. Um, just because Poggy used them, I used them as well. And then we look for um, a possible contradiction. A contradiction between um, three elements. On the one hand, the ability to will the maxim in virtue of an interest in actually pursuing the relevant end that is stated in the maxim. Secondly, um, the universal acceptance of M open a little footnote here. I actually tweaked this a little bit. Pogger has a slightly different version of that. Um, and um, natural laws, especially those uh, concerning um, human nature. So we start thinking, very roughly speaking, what if everyone was accepting, accepting this maxim? Does this maxim still work? Can we still pursue the relevant end? Can we still, in that sense, will this maxim? Or doesn't it make sense anymore? Um, and does it fit with human psychology? And of course the, kind of the simple examples are lying, for instance, so if everyone was lying to um, whatever this gives you some sort of advantage or benefit, um, then perhaps that is a possible world, but you cannot really get the benefit anymore. If everyone was lying, everyone would know that everyone's lying and you, you, you don't get anywhere anymore such a maxim very quickly collapses. So here I think the ability um, to will and in virtue of, of the interest in its end is really, is really doing the job. Now I want to argue that we can use this scheme to make sense of um, the carbon offsetting maxims that we might be um, using, at least implicitly, when we buy such offsets. So um, here's one possible maxim that we might be using. If I create excess emissions, I buy carbon offsets in order to neutralize my excess emissions. Okay, how could this go wrong? Could well be the case um, um, that there are not even enough um, offset certificates available for everyone to, to follow uh, that maxim. Could be the case that not all people can actually afford um, to buy the relevant offsets. Now I think that this can be fixed quite quickly. So maybe this maxim doesn't work, but we can actually tweak the maxim a little bit. So we could say, and I think this is more plausible, if I create excess emissions, I buy carbon offsets in order to neutralize my excess emissions as before, and if I cannot offset, because there uh, no more certificates available or it's too expensive for me, I do not cause these excess emissions. So in plain language, if it's too expensive, I don't fly. Now well, that's the kind of good maxim, I think. I think such a maxim is clearly universalizable, um, everyone can adopt that, that is perfectly fine. If that is the maxim that everyone's following, we don't have any soup. we're done. I don't think that many people actually follow that maxim. I think many people follow a rather different maxim. Um, so it could be this one here. It could be something like, I offset excess emissions as long as the sacrifice is small in order to have a clear conscience regarding my excess emissions. That sounds more plausible. Could well be that many people actually think more along those lines. And such a maxim, such a maxim that um, basically just is relying relying on the fact that we get these offsets cheaply, such a maxim is clearly not universalizable, because if we were going to universalize it, we very quickly find out that we can no longer achieve this end. We can no longer buy ourselves kind of a clear conscience on the cheap, because the prices for the offsets will very quickly increase. So if people really just offset because um, it's a very cheap way out, if that is the underlying maxim that, that people are following, then there's something really wrong about um, offsetting. The problem is, we can't know that. Maxims is, are things that are not accessible from the outside, we can't observe maxims, we can only speculate about that, that is not really something that an external observer can, can know but we can at least speculate about it, and it seems plausible to me that many people are rather motivated by such a more um, um, unstable, not universalizable maxim. Now, um, let me just um, very briefly say something about about Kant again. So, I mean, Kant of course thought about these things a lot, um, and he has this famous example of the philanthropist and. The philanthropist um, is described by Kant as being overcrowded and overclouded by his own grief, with it extinguished all sympathy with the fate of others. And now, in this situation where he's kind of completely depressed and down, he's doing the right thing. And um, Kant then says, then the action first has its genuine moral worth. Now, this has often been misunderstood as. Um, Kant thinks that people have to be sad in order to be truly moral. I mean, I don't think that that is really the case. What, what Kant is saying is, what, what is important is that people are doing the right thing not because they are only enjoying it. They're doing it because they think that it's their duty. They're doing it for the, as a sign of respect for the moral law. And Kant is arguing for that because he thinks that all other reasons are really fickle reasons. They may well be good. I mean, it's, it's actually, Kant would, would say it's good to also feel, feel good about doing the right thing. But it's important that this is not the only motivation because there may well be situations where we don't feel good about it, and then we still have to do the right thing. So the, the ultimate, the important motivation is really respect for the moral law and not some kind of positive inclination toward, towards the good action. Now, I think that something quite, quite similar is going on in the case of um, the carbon emissions. What we want is not a contingent motivation, not something that changes very quickly, not something fickle that depends on the price of these carbon emissions, of these carbon um, offset certificates. So if it it is um, right now very cheap, and then people do it, but suddenly it gets expensive, and then people don't do it anymore, then this is not really helpful. What we want to see is a more robust motivation. We want to see a situation where, well, the person that is currently offsetting with the cheap prices is still offsetting when the prices increase or would say, okay, if I can't afford it anymore, then I actually won't fly. I think what we are seeing is people who are right now buying it because it doesn't cost very much and would very easily change their behavior once the prices increase. So that is really um, a contingent, um, a fickle motivation um, and that's an issue. I think this this is really um, a problem. Now as I said, motivations are empirically inaccessible, we won't figure out why people are buying or not buying carbon offsets, but I think it's important to point out that it may be a plausible assumption that many people are really not robustly motivated, and that may well instill doubts about the moral worth of the actions. It may also be really important for policymakers because this means that such a system is really not sustainable. Once people start taking this more seriously, once more people offset, then such a system is likely to break down, because people are not sufficiently motivated to actually still buy the offsets when they get more expensive. Okay, now that was my last shot at making sense of my intuition that there's still something wrong with um, carbon offsetting. Um, even if all the implementation problems can be put aside. Um, and I think that really the, the core of the issue is here in, in the moral worth of our maxims that, that um, underlie our actions. And that is very much then an, an empirical matter. Some people may think, well, everyone is an idealist, they, they have these robust motivations, and other people may think that is not the case. What I want to show you um, while concluding, I have kind of two more slides. Um, I want to show you one reason why we should be very skeptical about the robustness of motivations people have to buy these offsets. So this I found in EasyJet's uh, board magazine, the Traveler magazine. So they tell you, did you know, you're paying tax four times the cost of your current footprint when you fly from the UK. Now, after this uh, talk, you should realize that this is really a very, very fishy claim. So they're telling you basically, oh, all these awful taxes on flying, I mean, and so many more plan like kerosene taxes, airport taxes and so on. You know, if you look at the offsetting prices, it's really very cheap to offset, so the damage from flying is really not that high. And I think this is really a grave mistake. The current offsetting prices are only low because not many people actually do it. So for, for EasyJet to actually use that as a form of advertising and as a form of political campaigning against um, higher taxes on flying is really completely absurd. So so y- y- you see that this is really um, an important issue also in, in terms of very practical applied um, policy discussions. So let me very briefly conclude then. OK, so this is really a bit light to, to see, so I have to, to read this out. So let's um, have a look at the question of individual ethics one more time. So provided I, f- I fly purely for leisure, may I fly as much as I like as long as I uh, buy the sufficient carbon offsets. And I suggest we really have two answers to that. You could think um, within a broadly kind of consequentialist framework, well yes, I mean, if the uh, offsetting scheme is really properly implemented, if it all works, um, if you buy the relevant offsets then you're fine, that's okay. But you could also say, if you have more Kantian moral background assumptions, which I personally share, that there is still a lot of doubt about that, because ultimately you want to measure um, the moral value of these actions in terms of the maxims that are underlying them. And these maxims are often of a questionable nature. Again, we can't really know that. It's an empirical question. But I think we have good reasons to suspect that many people are buying these offsets the wrong reasons. Now, I promised you a few words about um, the issue of justice, and really just a few words. Um, I really think that there are also independent reasons to um, reject um, such a scheme. And um, this advert from EasyJet already gave you a kind of hint. So if it is the case that um, these low prices are actually, actually used for political purposes, I think this is really leading to unjust results, um, kind of suggest that we're currently using the wrong scheme for organizing these offsets. Moreover, I think there's also a more fundamental, deeper problem. In the current scheme, in this voluntary scheme, we have very little incentive to actually change something about our own carbon path. So it is, it is I think, unjust to maintain a situation where um, we don't really make any efforts to put ourselves developed world onto a more sustainable path. So in a way this is this is delaying action. I'm not saying that it's necessarily always wrong to trade. I think sometimes these trades are incredibly important to use efficiency gains. But I think it is wrong to use these kinds of measures in order to prolong a path that is clearly unsustainable and that is also dangerous about, um, about these schemes. So that would be my my perspective on on the matter of justice. But this is really not an argument. This is really just a faraway remark. What I would want to say um, perhaps another time. So maybe I just um, close here. I'm very happy to take all kinds of questions. Thank you. Okay,
0: we have uh, about a half an hour for questions.
1: It's a very good question, and to be honest, I don't know. Um, I would think that once um, the airline industry is completely included in the ETS, I don't really see the role of these voluntary schemes anymore. So I mean, it it will be very interesting to see what they are actually doing. So I mean, maybe you could argue that um, there could still be an offset that additionally retires. European uh, credits. So you could say, well I mean, especially if you have a, if a, if you have a system that gives the allied industry still some of these uh, certificates in a form of grandfathering, basically as a present, if they don't have to buy them all as an option, you might still want to give customers the option of, you know, reducing um, the overall amount of certificates available in the European Union even further by buying these offsets. So maybe that is the kind of argument that they will use in order to pursue these schemes. But in general I think these voluntary offsetting schemes sit very oddly with a comprehensive industrial offsetting scheme. So that will be a massive political (coughs) discussion I think, and I don't know the answer to that. That's really a question for the airline (coughs) industry. What's your view, if I may ask?
2: Um, I doubt it. Mm. Uh, I doubt that companies will be able to retain the tax credits Mm. um, because the carbon credits are being purchased
3: taken out of the marketplace and they can be held mm. if they're used
1: for these kind of offsetting schemes. Yeah, but does it still make sense to offer to the customers to, to buy um, any more voluntary offset reductions once it is fully integrated in the European trading system? I'm not so sure of that, actually. I don't really see a role for such a scheme anymore, then. Kind okay, of, Just
3: kind of double the selling thing
1: So, I mean, what I think is, I mean, such a scheme could only make sense if this leads to an additional reduction of overall available emissions mm-hmm. in the European trading system. So, if
3: you're buying the EUA from Yes,
1: system. absolutely. And, I mean, this way, maybe that's the way forward for them, yes. And do you think
3: there's a place, because you, you talked earlier about how such large-scale compliance schemes can actually work, do you think there's a place for using those schemes for voluntary pre- offsetting sort of elsewhere? So, if you wanted to, say offset your annual travel, you could purchase EUAs out of the ETS. Do you think
1: there's a place for that? Um, I think this is already happening. So there, is, um, there are companies, I think there's at least one company in the UK where you um, actually um, buy ETS credits and retire them, rather than buying projects in the developing world, um, which I think is a rather smart scheme because it at least partly avoids the issue of additionality. So rather than going through this very difficult um, assessment procedure of uh, finding out whether this is actually doing any good in the developing world and whether this is actually reducing emissions, you just take out um, overall emission credits in the European system Uh, and of course that has a more immediate and measurable effect. There, There is one remaining issue of course, there might be indirect carbon leakage. So, it may be the case that either companies just take their production elsewhere. Of course, you can't do anything about that, but I mean, I could say, well, I mean, the solution for that is a global system. The other potential problem is that, I mean, the ETS is also open to buy these um, certificates through the clean development mechanism. And that is another potential leakage source if the CDM is not managed properly. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that from, from all the systems, I mean, the UN is really making a big effort to check these uh, projects carefully, but. There are many charges that this is not always working well. Nevertheless, I mean, from, from all the schemes, I think the large and relatively professionally managed um, CDM
4: system from the United Nations is the best one. Uh, essentially, the EDS hasn't really worked at all. The sales so far for phase one and phase two. incentive for them to go ahead and reduce their carbon emissions in any way. Um, that hopefully will change in 2013 when there is a central allocation system that will be put in place with yeah. the introduction of phase three of the EUBTS. But there is still great opposition and it is still only a draft paper. So we don't really know if that will happen. Yeah, the issue you. of airlines coming in twenty twelve, if it's still under the existing scheme. So I would just assume I no, totally agree with that, I mean,
1: again we now have to distinguish between the Clean Development Mechanism and the ETS system and I mean the ETS, the European Trading uh, Scheme for um, Certified Emission Reductions um, is really highly problematic, first of all because they used this principle of grandfathering, that means they gave all the different companies that participate in that scheme just the right kind of level of emissions, the right kind of level of certificates that they needed, uh, rather than auctioning it away, what the economists would have preferred. And they also distributed too many because each national government had an interest to give its own industry a lot of them. So the first two phases, as you say, of the ETS were not a great success. There is now hope for the third phase. So the EU Commission is very ambitious now about the third phase. Um, um, Parts of the um, certificates will now be auctioned, which is the right approach. It will also be much more tightly controlled in terms of the levels that are supplied. But whether it will work, I mean, as you say, I mean we're still in the drafting stage, and I mean it has to run next year. So, um, yes, I mean, everyone is looking at that. that. That is really kind of decisive for seeing whether we can actually implement something like a properly working industrial trading scheme. Also, now, there's,
4: there's, there's I mean, the problem, you mentioned, which is carbon leakage, the plenty of companies in the How do you address that without having a global offset system? it's really I mean, if the problem of. I mean, I just find offsetting completely absurd in the first place. But <laughs> if you do need, if you do think that offsetting is a good idea, you need to have it on a global scale. You don't have it on a regional scale.
1: Totally agree. But uh, okay, let's not turn this into into a. Uh, th- detailed discussion of the European trading scheme, because I, f- I feel there may be people who can answer these questions uh, better. Let's try um, to keep the questions limited here as well, because we have quite a, f-
0: a few on uh, the list. So, back
3: there. Uh, First. Good
1: question. Have offset the flag. Yes, once. <laughs> 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 so the
3: real question was,
2: a um, very, very strong moral argument that voluntary um, programs, voluntary
1: Whether it's the only way, you're saying, to engage with the developing world. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly, I certainly don't think it's the only way. Um, because many other proposals are on the table by, say, people interested in, in global ethics who think about, say, big funds that could support the developing world to help them with their um, adaptation efforts um, by using development aids more carefully and so on and so on and so on. So there are many other ideas, but if you ask me what is currently the most effective scheme, then one has to say that the clean development mechanism has done quite a few good things for some <coughs> problems. So um, the best-managed projects, I do think, actually, have been helping both with uh, reducing emissions and promoting sub-technologies. Um, but, I mean, that's really, that's, that's really a mixed bag. I mean, that's, it's, it's very hard to assess. So from an economic perspective, I mean, that's so far the only... Kind of steam that um, is working between the developed world and the developing world, um, and it has led to a substantial cash transfer as well, um, which which is of course good for development. But I mean, this is I'm not want I'm not really designing to give the CDM a whitewash because there are many many problems and in, in, in the details that um, yeah I mean we would have to discuss separately I think. Uh, in the
0: back
5: uh, uh, there. Charles. Um. Thanks very much. Interesting, actually. You, um, you touched on the problems with the motivations of the buyer and the seller. Yes. Um, but there's another group in this that I think maybe could um, to add to it. And I do like your thoughts on it. The market makers in the middle, I and mean, particularly the people that actually offer the voluntary schemes, the airlines, yeah. mm-hmm. and their motivation. Because mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would argue that their underlying motivation for offering it is to actually reduce carbon. Motivation underlying has moral issues along with it. Doesn't I if the, the uh, offsets cost more, would they still be prepared to offer the same schemes? So, just like your thoughts on the motivations of the, the market makers.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> I have certain views on <coughs> that one. So, um, I think airlines like EasyJet use these schemes in order to suggest that really flying is not that harmful, Um, and I mean EasyJet is still not alone, so I've been kind of picking on EasyJet here, this is not really fair because other airlines are in exactly the same boat. So if you basically suggest that, I mean, ah, yeah, yeah, it's only £2 for the flight, so don't worry about it, yes, I mean, they clearly have an interest to offer these schemes. I have to say that, I mean, I met a few people from kind of these smaller voluntary offsetting companies. And some of them are really idealists, um, so I'm not sure whether they're doing the right thing. That's very difficult to say. Um, but at the very least, I, I think that they have kind of the right motivation to, to, to try and, and solve the problem. Um, they may well be misguided. But I mean, I recently, for instance, I saw a representative of that, of that company that retires EDS credits, which I, I find a slightly smarter um, system and I mean, quite clearly there was at least the impetus to do something good about, about the whole thing to find a better way and she was hugely critical of these other schemes, of course I mean, of course, for reasons, it's also her business case, obviously but, I mean, I mean yeah, it's mixed but in, in, in terms of the airlines, I'm, I'm very, very skeptical so I completely agree with you, there is another actor here and we, sh- we should really question that I also think that this may well be a form of customer costum- manipulation so they're the suggesting that it's so cheap to offset may kind of make people stop worry about the problem. Which then goes back to the standard issue. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah,
6: hello, my name is Patrick Lane, I'm the director uh, of corporate engagement at WWF. And I am bombarded with requests by companies that want to offset and they want us yeah. to endorse their programs. But I want to come back to the issue that um, of the pricing, uh, because this is where they always, this is what their, their approach to me is. Clearly, it's underpriced in your model because you're looking at systemic price, the whole you know. Yeah. Mm. But on a project, marginal basis, on the project basis, they come with these really new projects, you know. Um, mm. And if I say no to that, then that cattle ranch in Argentina or Brazil, that's not capturing the methane emissions of the of the manure, um, then that won't be done. Mm. And that here they're saying, and it really is what you know, it really is two pounds mm. uh, is going to is going to capture mm. the cost of that. Mm. So. That sounds to me like something reasonable. You know, the planet
1: is a better place for doing that. So why would I say no? Why yes, would I question and, their morals? Yes, and I mean, this is exactly why I was laboring this point for a long time. So on the one hand, I think I think it's, it's a good thing if people pay these two pounds in order to offset their emissions, if it really leads to a genuine emission reduction. So yes, I mean, if there really is this massive project of capturing the methane, I mean, fantastic. Let's go for it. And if those people who actually have at least enough idealism to pay these two pounds, if they're willing to do that, well, great. I mean, that's that's progress. In that sense, that's a good thing. I mean, the problem is, as I say, I mean, then there is this additional systemic question as well. So, um, I mean, if I if I if I wasn't so skeptical about the implementation, I would say everyone should immediately start offsetting their flights because I think. It's the right thing to do. I'm just also pointing out it may well also be misleading in terms of the actual costs once we consider the, the systemic level. But otherwise, I totally agree with you. And it's a good thing that there are so many. Pro- uh, it's a good thing that we can still kind of use low hanging foods now. We should use these low hanging foods. But we should also be aware that there won't be that many low hanging foods and we will still have to make very much more substantial cuts. And this will ultimately have to change our own behavior. I mean, we cannot all buy these offsets and just continue living like the current we live. That that is currently not going to happen. But yeah, I'm I'm completely with you on that one.
6: But for the record, we actually don't endorse anybody's carbon. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have we wrote something called the Gold Standard that is a methodology. You know, yeah. the first part we were talking about the implementation. If you are going to do it, here's how you here's how to implement it in the most pragmatic, efficient way.
2: carbon offsets were a good thing to do, then we should be able to apply them to, to other kinds of carbon emissions as well, yeah. such as eating meat, yes. domestic heating and, and various other activities. Yes. But we, we f- for the vast majority of people, flying is the fastest way to travel we live in a, in a culture that values speed in, in, with great value and it, it, it's all pretty much of a piece with the way people are so keen on not, not just fast transport and fast cars and so on, but people want fast food. and, and we, we live in a culture where instant gratification is demanded. And that the whole the whole system the whole culture is, is it, it is self-destructive in, in these kinds of ways and, and it's not you, you, you can't reduce these to, to simple logics of, of mathematics and, and and straightforward symbols of logic it, it doesn't work like that it, it's it, it's the culture but it's people's attitude that that's just self-destructive?
1: Well, I mean, I agree with you on the observation that something has to change very fundamentally. Um, I disagree with you on the charge that I just reduced it to symbols. I don't think I've only done that. I I hope to have done a few things more. But let me just say a few things about how substantial the problem is and why we really need to tackle it and why it will lead to significant changes in our lifestyle if we succeed. So, if we want to remain under this two-degree threshold, then we have to reduce um, the per-person emission to around two tons per year. Um, now currently the average European is emitting something like 16, so 1.6 tons per year. The average um, Canadian, US, American, Australian, something like 20 tons per year. So um, you can see immediately that this must lead to absolutely massive changes in our lifestyle. And now we're only talking for our target for uh, 2050, if we talk about um, 2100, then we actually have to reduce emissions even further to perhaps one ton or perhaps only half a ton. So we basically have to reach a level that is almost carbon neutral. And that means everything has to change, really, I mean, we have to find a very different way of living. Now, the question is, how are we even going to do that? So. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a mild optimist in the sense that I think we will we will probably try to seek some kind of technological forward strategy. So I, I think that we we need very urgently to find carbon uh, technologies. I mean, technologies that reduce carbon quite dramatically. We need to find uh, decoupling in our in, in the way we produce things. But it also means that we have to change consumer preferences dramatically. So it's it's just not possible that people. All want to have their own car, that's probably not, not, not likely to happen um, unless we really completely um, find a way to kind of yeah, fi- find massive sources of electricity um, that we currently don't have, for instance. And it's very unlikely that people can fly around all the time, um, so um, even though I think that we can probably largely, um, if you're really lucky, maintain a decent lifestyle, I mean it, it, will, it will lead to, to quite dramatic changes. Yes. The, the talk.
5: Um, I definitely agree that the price of carbon emissions is way too low. <coughs> have you or anyone else looked at what you think the actual price, let's say, of I don't know, of course they difficult to have assumptions, but let's say what the actual carbon emission offset commensurate offset would be from Heathrow to JFK? And say you know, it's not it's not five pounds or ten dollars or whatever. It is. What do you think it actually should be? What do you think it actually is? I don't
1: know. It's the short answer. Um, so, I mean, we would need several steps to kind of even approach um, such a number. So first of all, we need to calculate much more carefully what the actual carbon forcing effect is, um, which these airlines often don't really do, um, because they just kind of equalize this to a kind of a normal carbon, of carbon emission on the ground, which is not really helpful because there are, there are kind of stronger effects once you emit this, um, where, where airplanes fly. And then secondly, you have to somehow come up with an estimate where the market would be in equilibrium. And that seems very, very hard. So um, some economists think that maybe something like 50 US dollars per ton or so. Right now, um, we have something like, I think, 16 euros per ton in the European trading system. So there's still um, a way to go. But I, I actually think, and this is still a bit of a riddle for me. I actually think that even if we had kind of those market prices where economists think that kind of substantial change would happen, um, it still seems too low to really change the motivation of people not to fly. So it might well be the case that um, actually the demand for these offsets will still be some asset that it might actually at some point be pushed higher once we really put a very strict cap on the maximum amount, especially in the transition phase when people still have this very strong desire to um, have certain emissions say to fly around so we might actually see something like a peak or so and then kind of preferences adapt um, so as I say I mean the short answer is very hard uh, I don't know um, but my speculation is we will probably see something that is relatively high if we really put in um, a big cap and then it will probably eventually you know find an equilibrium point that may be um, a little lower again um, mentioned uh, planting trees to offset,
5: yes. but could you give your opinion on avoiding deforestation, particularly uh, with reference to the red scheme? Because if that does yes. emerge a multi-billion dollar uh, industry or natural system, that could be the world's largest offset. Have you yeah, Just frame it within
1: discussion the with apple yes. Yes. Um, one of the in a way economically cheapest and most sensible ways to do something about the climate now would be to stop the reduction of rainforests um, very quickly. And um, the, the, the RED scheme is designed precisely to do that. So very roughly speaking the idea is that uh, developed nations pay developing countries with uh, rainforests to um, reduce and eventually stop deforestation. Now I'm in principle in favor of that. I think it makes sense. You could say, well, I mean these uh, developing countries with rainforest, they really provide a service for the rest of the world, and it's wrong that the rest of the world is not valuing their contribution, and they they should be compensated for the fact because it is an economic loss i mean for for those farmers that are looking for additional farmland there for those countries that are growing, um, it is of course difficult to preserve these huge amounts of land I mean Europe has an easy argument there they have uh, you know uh, completely deforested uh, centuries ago. So um, so yes, I think the uh, developed world should actually make a contribution. The problem with the offsetting schemes is that we have, have difficulties with permanence here. Also we have difficulties with additionality. So not destroying rainforest is not an additional uh, emission reduction. It's just preventing a further uh, emission and it's kind of of keeping a certain system level, a kind of system provision that is positive. So I actually think we need two separate systems. We need to f- keep these things apart. So to integrate the wet system into the normal uh, carbon offsetting carbon trading scheme, I think would be a mistake because it is misleading. Um, that is that is my opinion about that. This is still very much in debate. I think right now there is a tendency to say, well, let's somehow integrate it into the carbon into the clean development mechanism because this is where the big money currently is. Well, I think that would be misleading because it, it would actually blow up the possible amount of, of certificates in the market and uh, the carbon price might fall. So let's keep these things neatly separate or at the very least, otherwise make an effort to um, to keep the cap low. Was still a question? No, I think it was Then, question.
5: Okay. I just wanted to ask you... Um,
3: especially the fact that there is an exchange price for compliance credits, but in the voluntary market, if you're talking about VERS, yeah. yeah. there is no the price. So first, it's important to note that you can't really talk about price in a uniform way, whether you're talking about CERs or EUAs, not VERS, yeah. um, Because with VERS, as you probably well know, there's quite a fluctuation depending on what the standard is, Absolutely.
1: where yeah. the project's based. Yeah. There so is no real market right now for the voluntary emission.
3: Uh, well, there is a market. It's just there's just no
1: set price. Well, it's a messy market. Yeah.
3: Right. So, um, in terms of price and the motivation behind price or the driver behind price um, in the compliance market, certainly in an application market, um, that the price acts to reduce um, emissions. Ultimately, that's the intention of the cap. But with the um, voluntary market, price isn't actually there to incentivize reductions. it's actually there just as um, the price of the project. So I don't really um, I think you really need to be careful when you distinguish um, the exchange traded markets and the voluntary markets. So in your examples are you specifically referring to voluntary credits or the voluntary the act of voluntary reductions through a set price?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think that for my argument, it ultimately matters very much. I mean, not for the more philosophical argument I'm making. But I agree with you in terms of the implementation that there are interesting issues here. So I mean, of course, there is isn't, an there isn't interaction between the market. I mean, EasyJet, for instance, is buying their stuff from the Clean Development Mechanism, basically, I think, from the UK government in the end. Um, so um, the price on the Clean Development Mechanism um, market the market um, of course determines the voluntary emission reduction certificates that are available to us, to at least to to an extent. But you're right that there is, I mean there is something about about the motivation here. So um, of course a higher price in the industrial market uh, creates additional incentives for people to make savings. This is not the case. The market, at least not to the same degree. I mean, it could incentivize people not to fly, but only if it was no longer a voluntary market. And that's exactly the issue with the voluntary market. That exactly that mechanism doesn't work. So you you have something like a valve here. You have something like people can always escape, they can, they can no longer do it. And, and that is exactly the issue with the voluntary market. So, so yes. I mean.
3: Because in the voluntary market, there are other motivations mm-hmm. to offset, i.e., or corporate social responsibility, yeah. and the price may or may not be quite as sensitive as it would be with a set price in the exchange for the market, ch- mm. which would act as an incentivizer to reduce your emissions.
1: This is why demand curve had this king shape. Right. That's, that's um, a very simple model of, of kind of saying, okay, there's a certain kind of area of price where people don't really care because I mean, it's, it's about these other goals, but then suddenly it becomes quite price sensitive once it really matters.
3: So what's your moral view then on um, offsetting for reasons other than just for the intention to reduce your emissions, whether it's for marketing or corporate source (coughs) responsibility? Is there a moral view to that or is it just legitimate if it's a means to an end versus an end?
1: I mean I think it faces the problems that I described in the same way, in a way in a way, it's even worse of course, because again this is a very fickle motivation, it's not really a robust motivation to do something about the climate, it's basically just saying, you know, if it's cheap to, you know, manage my uh, kind of external image of my company like that, then I'll do it, but I can't really rely on the fact that people really will do it once these prices go up. Um, so that is the bad side, I mean, I don't think that public pressure is always a bad thing, So. It could have positive kind of side effects. But in terms of, of the kind of moral analysis, I think that the very same reasons apply yes. That that's, that's the problem, because it's not one <coughs> it's the wrong motive for doing should be done, yes. I think that we need to establish um, a global carbon price um, and preferably through a global tax. So um, I think that every carbon emission has to cost something and this price has to be um, plannable for companies. So tax is good in that regard because we can actually make it very clear in the future, for the next 50 or 100 years, this is going to be the carbon price and this will change a lot of stuff. Um, so we need a big global deal on that, it's politically currently almost impossible, but this is really what should happen. Um, that's the first thing to do. But then in addition, we also need to have um, a systematic rethinking in terms of what consumers actually want to do, say, consumption cars and so on and so on and so on. And we also need to have a technological drive uh, to change uh, our supply of energy and our use of energy. So these are the things that should happen. now what can you do as an individual? So, I mean, one thing, I've been, I mean, it's very difficult. You you start gloating about these things, but I mean, we are all kind of in guilt there. I think, I mean, there's probably no one here in the room that has two tons or less in terms of carbon emissions. We we all will have more. I have, well, I have produced my flying. Um, So, in academia, you can fly around a lot. So, I met a colleague a year ago who told me that he's now flying to a um, climate change conference in Hawaii. <laughs> that makes sense. So I'm, I'm trying not to do that. So I mean, perhaps one intercontinental flight to year, perhaps two or so. But that is always an issue because in academia you really have to present your work at in international conferences. Um, so far, this has been working. I wonder if this pressure to fly more will probably increase as my career progresses. Um, I'm cycling to work most of the time or take public transport. I still have a car that I hardly ever use, but I should really sell now. So so you see, you know, it's really a mixed bag. I mean, my family lives in Germany, so flying to Hamburg, yes, I mean, of course, I want to see them now and then, and and to take the flight. Um, I'm trying to reduce my meat consumption, so this is some of the things I I really understood uh, this year that actually meat consumption, in particular beef consumption, makes a huge difference. That's a relatively easy thing for us to do. So this is what I'm trying to do. I still can't completely do without it, but I'm getting closer to it, and I'm, I'm working on that, so I think I had some success in that regard, at least. But uh, I would estimate that my carbon emissions are still way too high. Uh, that's how it is. Uh, one last question. Uh, back
0: I was just wondering if you've done your research into the carbon neutral companies, <laughs> which, which company was that? Carbon <laughs> what, what do they do? Okay. Uh, they, they offset emissions for
1: businesses and people, individuals. I prefer to do it through them uh, than an airline. I but mean, I think there are quite a few companies that do these things, and some of them use higher standards than others. So I, I don't know the Carbon company now in particular, um, but I already mentioned uh, I, I had some conversation with this one company that would hire CTS credits. That, for instance, sounded like a sensible idea, but. I'm not going to promote any specific company here, I generally think that if you buy these carbon offsets you should check the standards very carefully, so the gold standard was mentioned that's one of the higher standards, Um, that makes sense, but direct retiring of of industrial credits also makes a lot of sense to me. So yes, and also they often provide better carbon calculators, so I said the, the islands often underestimate the actual effect of the emissions. So it's a good idea to use several carbon calculators and make up your own mind how much you actually have to offset, and shop around a little bit for the best offer if you if you think that offsetting is a good idea. Can I, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and end it
0: there. But if you had a question that you didn't get to ask, uh, please do come and speak to Kai the drinks reception that follows, um, and I hope you'll join me in thanking him for it. An-